Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's text in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing his young friend Timothy about how he can remain faithful through suffering. There's great encouragement here for anyone who's taking a little heat for standing up for Jesus and the gospel. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Keep On Keeping On. Heavenly Father, now as we open the word, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts to hear this God-breathed word sent to save us, to heal us, to keep us on the straight and narrow, to help us to build our house upon the rock foundation. When the storms of life hit, we will stand because we built it on the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, usually men kept on death row are more like monsters Then men, violent people, without consciences, murderers and alike. But in this case, Paul the Apostle, who sits shackled in chains in a Roman dungeon, languishing away, waiting for execution, uh, he is not like a monster. In fact, Paul exemplifies everything a good man should be. But he's suffering alone and waiting to die. Why? Well, he's told us why. Uh, He is a Christian. He proclaims the gospel, the good news. He takes a stand for the truth about Jesus Christ. And it's because he speaks in his name that he's now locked up, incarcerated there at Rome. Now, Only two years separate the writing of Paul's first letter to Timothy and the second one. Uh, A lot can happen in 24 months, and a lot did happen to Paul. Not so much for Timothy. Timothy is still uh, left there at Ephesus as a young pastor. He's in his mid-30s, and he's uh, holding it together there, kind of um, keeping things uh, going. He was told by Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy as a free man, Paul was traveling around, left Timothy in charge to, uh, to put in some corrections there and to pastor the church at Ephesus. And while Paul was away, intending to come back to Timothy, he wrote Timothy, 1 Timothy. And he said, I'm writing to you just in case I'm delayed that you, would, uh, you should know how to direct the affairs of the church. Well, two years have gone by. And in those two years, the persecution against Christians has really heated up. Nero is on the throne and Nero has gone mad. He hates anything to do with Jesus Christ, Christianity, Christian morality. And as Christianity blossoms, Rome has become less and less tolerant and more and more hostile. Why did they hate Christians like Paul? And why is he locked up? Well, Christians wouldn't worship Caesar. They wouldn't bow the knee to Nero or pray to him, for one thing, so that they were called unpatriotic and treasonous. 
Uh, they were anti-family because the families had shrines and, and family superstitious prayers and pagan altars. And so at festivals and family times and family dinners, the Christians were opting out. So they were anti-social, anti-family. And then the things that they were saying were really upsetting to the Roman Empire. You need to repent of your sins. God is coming to judge the world. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that you can be saved. Now, Nero just went mad with hatred toward the Christian message, especially about sexual immorality. Nero was married twice to men and to a boy. And so the letter written to the Romans by Paul was it one of his favorite pieces of literature, if you know what I'm saying. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. That's all right. One more time. Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27. Yeah, it was not a verse he put on the refrigerator, for sure. Uh, instead, he lit a fire. I said, I'll let you know all of all you Christians, what I think about Christianity and your morality. And then he shifted the blame to Christians and then began the great persecution that lasted 300 years, 300 years. And so uh, it started off with a big blaze of fire and a big dramatic move to take the most famous Christian and throw him in a dungeon, lock him up and sentence him to death. That will teach the Christians a thing or two. Uh, And so it's time there. He's languishing away, and Paul does what he always does when he has a little extra time on his hands and he's alone. He picks up a pen and starts to write, and he's able to write his second and final letter to his young pastor friend, uh, Timothy, whom he led to the Lord some 15 years earlier, and we talked about that. And Timothy's not known for his natural uh, confidence. In fact, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, I've told you that there are 25 direct exhortations to Timothy to be bold, to be confident, to stop being afraid, to not let other people walk on him, despise him because he's young or whatever. 25 times. So Paul is thinking things have heated up. They've arrested me. Pastors are being hauled off, uh, arrested, incarcerated, and martyred. How in the world is a guy like Timothy, who's naturally kind of uh, introverted and shy and kind of feeling inadequate, how is he going to make it? Picks up his pen. The Holy Spirit says, exactly, Paul. Let's tell Timothy, 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 Timothea, let's tell all the Timothys in the world how they can find the strength to endure in the face of suffering. Verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men, who will also be qualified to teach others, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like some criminal. But God's word is not changed. Chained, rather, and neither is it changed. (laughs) Verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. All right, verses 1 through 13. For our reflection this morning, these 13 verses, there are four imperatives. And imperatives are just kind of exhortations in command form. Uh, These exhortations will help Timothy not collapse. I like what... Uh, Ray Stedman, great Bible teachers with the Lord now, uh, he entitled uh, the theme of 2 Timothy, all four chapters, by saying how not to collapse. How not to collapse. So Timothy, here's how more. We've already heard chapter 1. Now chapter 2, continued exhortations. Timothy, you're going to make it. God has given you everything you need. To carry out the commission he's placed before you because that's how God is. God has called you to private things. God has called you to public things. And anything God has called you to do with the call came an enablement of grace that you are able to carry that out to completion. Now, these four exhortations, let me give them to you. Some of you are note takers and then we'll go through them one at a time. The first one, he says, keep finding strength in Jesus. The second one is keep passing the baton. In other words, keep spreading the gospel. Number three, keep hanging in there. And number four, keep remembering Jesus. Now, to the first exhortation, keep finding strength in the grace that Jesus has for you. We have the first verse up here. And let's spend just a little bit of time. Don't worry, we are going to get to all the verses, but um, I just want you to know it's worth spending a little time here because it's the key. Paul's going to answer two very important questions, isn't he? What's the source of Christian strength and where can we find it? Paul's going to tell us, my son, my daughter, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Interesting that be strong is in a passive form in the Greek, which means it is a, it, you are acted upon to become strong. So uh, become strong or be strengthened or be made strong because God has never asked any of us to reach down deep and pull, uh, pull up some willpower or grin and do this thing. It's always cooperate with the grace that I have already given you, and that 
grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect through weakness. And so we have the first exhortation, keep finding your strength in Jesus. And it's something that Hermogenes and Phygelus, who we just spoke of last week, failed to do. Why? They failed. They deserted them. They came for the apostle Paul. Phygelus was a Christian worker. He was somebody from the pews, somebody on the platform. Phygelus and friend Hermogenes, co-workers in Christ. You know this guy? Uh, no. Well, we're hauling him to Rome. You could come with him. <laughs> Everyone on the team deserted him. They didn't find the grace. They were not strengthened. They were not strong. What happened? And it wasn't just Phygelus and Hermogenes, as I said. Paul said, everybody on the team from Asia left me high and dry. By, by denying the faith and disassociating with other Christians like Paul, they tried to make it better for themselves and spare themselves from suffering by disassociating with that which is bringing the suffering. That's a bad move. That's a losing proposition. Because Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Mark chapter 8. So too bad, too bad that anybody falls away from the gospel. When the heat comes up, you have the strength. You have the power. Check out what he says in Isaiah 40. He says, he gives strength to the weary God increases the power of the weak. Even young men will grow tired and weary. They stubble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's a, that's a promise for you. That's, that's ours. That belongs to us. That's who God is. He always has what you need, the strength that you need. He will always provide it. What happened? Where was the disconnect? Why jealous? What happened to you? You didn't access it. You didn't find it. You weren't strengthened. You didn't receive it because that's what has to happen. God doesn't come and weave a magic wand over you and, and say, oh, you're, you're strong now. There's something about trusting into it and obeying in light of the, the, the circumstances and walking in faith and abiding with him. That's the word. If you abide with me, if you stay connected with me, if you're seeking me and walking with me and serving me, that's the conduit that we find this grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I like what one writer said. He said, it's called grace. That's what makes you strong. Grace is the life that flows from Jesus that really is our whole Christian life. But grace, why is it strengthening? Well, think about it. As he said, there's nothing that can make us strong like saying, I am a child of God in Christ Jesus, and I have the love and favor of God even though I don't deserve it. That's the strength that comes from grace. The thing about grace that empowers you is, is, is that when it comes to salvation, it's all up to God. It was his kindness that led you to repentance. 
It's his Holy Spirit that quickened you. It's his love that filled you. By grace, your sins will never be used against you. By grace, you can do all things through him who gives you strength. By grace, he chose you before the foundation of the world. By grace, you will overcome the world. There's a lot of strength in those facts. Be strong in it. And where is it? It's in Christ. See, there's that connection. Well, how is grace really obtained? How do I tap into that power? I just want to know how to be strong. Well, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Let me give you a picture of it in action. Here's what happens. In Luke chapter 7, you've got a guy who needs to be strengthened. He's got a withered hand. It doesn't work. Okay, so it's withered. Here's my withered hand. Jesus, Son of God, God in a body, says to him, I say to you, stretch forth that hand. Now, if it were me, I'd have some problems with that. <laughs> I would be thinking, uh, excuse me, someone tell the Lord, this hand been a bum hand for many, many years, Lord. I would love to stretch forth my hand, but I cannot. Can you see? I don't have the ability. Stretch forth the hand. Okay, I need some strength here, the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm, stre- I, I'm stretching it forth, and there you go. Was it God? Was it me? How did that happen? I was helpless. I, I couldn't do it. I needed to be strengthened. But he asked me to do it. And as I stepped forth in faith, and in my heart, I said, I will obey what God's will is for me, what God is saying. I need you to do this. I want you to do it. You can do it. Now do it. Okay. (laughs) And then something's happening. We're meeting together and the grace of God is strengthening me and my hand is made whole. Peter, on the boat, the Lord says, Peter, (laughs) come. Once again, God speaking, giving the order. I want you to do something. I think you can do it, even though without me, you could never do it. And Peter says, okay. And he starts to respond in faith and trust to the word of God, which is calling him to do something that God wants him to do. And he steps out of the boat and he walks. He finds the strength to do that which he could never have done, which nobody could have ever done, unless the grace of God that was in Christ Jesus was channeled to him. And notice when the connection between him and Christ Jesus, where is found, where is the great where the grace is found, I should say. When that connection's broken, what's up? He sinks. Why? Because there's only one place you're going to find that grace and strength. It's in walking and abiding and living and serving and thinking and loving him. And as I respond, he's faithful. And that grace is mine. And I get strengthened. Say, yes, Lord. Go ahead, practice. Yes, Lord. That's what it is. It's yes, Lord. It's not like, but I can't, you know. Oh, drown. What do you mean, step out of the boat? Are you kidding me? None of that. Because you won't find 
It's a strength there. So be strong in the Lord. Now, now better move on. Number two, <laughs> it goes a lot faster. So be strong in the grace that's found in Jesus. And secondly, keep passing the baton and keep uh, spreading the faith. And the things which you have heard me say in the presence of many uh, witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. How is this connected? Oh, in direct defiance to Rome, the persecution, the threats, the danger, the intimidation to the Christian churches, shut that down. No more gospelizing. No more spreading the faith. No more talking about this in Jesus' name business. And Paul says, Oh, we're not going to shut it down, Timothy. You're going to step it up. You're going to continue. Because why? First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God, the Savior of all people, want, wants everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is not willing that anybody should perish, but that everybody come to repentance. Why can't we shut it down? Because the gospel is the only way. Preaching the gospel is the only way somebody will ever come to faith. Romans chapter 10 says, how can they come to know Jesus without somebody telling them? Romans chapter 10. And so he says, Timothy, Rome is going to bear its ugly, nasty, sharp little canines, little fangs, and say, you shut up. And I want you to take the gospel, make sure you got the real thing too, the genuine product gospel, not new, newfangled, enlightened gospel, the gospel that I preached in front of everybody. Everybody knows what that gospel is, and I want you to find not just anybody, but qualified men, trustworthy, faithful men, and I want you to keep the process going. He says, make sure, number one, here's how to do that. Make sure it's the genuine gospel. The false teachers came in with the gospel that said, hey, we're going to help you out. We're going to twist, cut, and paste, and we're going to have a new gospel that the emperor is going to love. He's not going to have a problem with it. We're just going to talk about the love, love, love. God just loves everybody. And if two people love each other, emperor, you're free. You're not going to have any problems here. We're not going to get in your face, repent, repent, repent. I never tell anybody to repent. I just tell them how much God loves them. So you just follow this new gospel, and all your problems will be solved. But no can do. He says, you make sure... The gospel that everybody knows. The 13 scrolls that I've written through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let those words be because there's no other gospel. Galatians chapter 1 says to these kinds of Christians, I'm astonished that you're so quickly just abandoning the one who called you, first of all, him, by the grace of Christ, and here's how you're abandoning him, by turning to a different gospel. It's so much more tolerant and forgiving and loving. It doesn't cause people to be so offended. You know, you call him Jesus, I call him Muhammad. 
It's the same God. All religions are the same. Let's just take the word hell out, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But So here's how you keep this thing going. Make sure, as Jude said, it's the gospel entrusted once for all to God's people to defend, not to dialogue. It's not open for dialogue. It was given once and for all to God's people. Entrusted, Jude, verse 3. That's what we have. And he says, fine, reliable, faithful men. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, 15 qualities for those men. And so he doesn't need to say anything more than make sure they're faithful, make sure they're called. They have a calling of, the word was elder, but it also is interchangeably used with pastor. And so make sure they have pastoral calls on their lives, they're faithful, and give those words, the true gospel, to genuine, truly God-called men. And then you've, you've got something. You've got something good. It's going to work that way. Amen. Number three. He says in verse three to five, hang in there, keep hanging in there. In fact, one writer said, really, three words describes the message of Second Timothy. Hang in there. All right, endure hardship. That's the text here. So Timothy is to be strengthened by the grace that he finds in walking with Jesus because it's in Jesus. He's entrusting the gospel to others. And with the goal in mind, he must endure the hard consequences of taking a stand for Jesus Christ. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to say, endure hardship. And I'm going to use three examples from everyday life that ought to tell you, look, um, it's not an unreasonable thought to think that something outstanding, of outstanding worth or value, or a coveted prize, should come because you are sacrificing, you are working hard, there's some pain, suffering, and cost. So he goes with the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. What I like about these metaphors for your Christian life and mine are that they have different nuances. And so in the different nuances, you'll catch a different flavor of why these things should inspire you. And the first thing he says, hang in there, man, think of a soldier. Not, uh, not one serving as a soldier, no one, I should say, serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. So he's saying, hang in there through Christian suffering by having a single-minded devotion because you want to please the one who has enlisted you to the service. And if you press this metaphor, you will get that would be God. So you want to please God. He's the one who called you into, let's, let's pretend it's service as in an army. So on the battlefield, Timothy, when things are painful or uncomfortable, you've got a threat. It's all irrelevant to a good soldier. And we are talking about a good soldier, not a bad soldier. A good soldier, you know, if he says forward march, he doesn't say it's too dangerous, right? Or if he says company halt. So, hey, you know what? I feel like going on a little bit. Who are you to say, you know, stop here? He doesn't do that. He wants to please him. 
you see? Or we need you to take these provisions to the front lines. What? I don't have a life? I've got a life. I've got stuff to do. All right? So maybe after I run a few of my errands, I'll have some time to fit you into my busy schedule. He says, no. That's not how it works. He says, we want to please him. And we keep doing what he's telling us to do in spite of any suffering or hardship that comes our way because we have a single focus. Now, listen to what one writer said. Yeah, yes, we have lives and families and secular responsibilities and activities. But the Bible teaches us that there's a way to live a full and rich life without losing focus on why we're here and who it is we serve and who it is we're living for. When everyday life becomes an entanglement that keeps us from serving God, and when the pursuit of our lives becomes more about our own pleasure than His, when believers are no longer willing to suffer the pain to which all godly people are called, then there are not good soldiers because they've lost sight of the one thing that was important, pleasing the one who's called them into service. Timothy, endure hardship in this Christian life without shirking your duty, because that's the way to please him. Secondly, endure suffering as a Christian, Timothy, and think of an athlete. And so now, uh, you know, the Olympic Games was a big deal in Roman and Greek culture. So he says, in the same way, if anyone competes as an athlete, and then he says something a little bit different. How's this going to encourage him? He does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. That's very interesting. Now, there's a lot on the line. If you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, to win that prize, you have to play by God's rules, and we have the rule book. Right? So, I mean, try using your hands in soccer. (laughs) If you want to win the game, you're not going to win the game because you're not allowed to do that. I found that out in eighth grade. (laughs) A lot of whistles were blown. Whenever I played any sports, there were flags flying all over the place. Right? Because it was breaking the rules. And when you break the rules, you get disqualified. There are penalties. There are forfeitures. You can't violate the rules in sports, and it goes for the same arenas of all life. The rules of the road. Try violating them. The rules of society. The rules for businesses. The rules for households. The rules for sports. Break them, and there's penalty, forfeiture, and loss. There are rules for our Christian life and the task God has called us to. The heat comes. Are you one of those Christians? You teach we've got to repent or we're going to go to hell? No changing the words. That's a rule. Do you want to hear the prize at the end? One of the rules is you don't cut and paste. You don't get to say the message to parts that don't bring any heat back. You have to be faithful. That's the rule. 
The rule is, this is the gospel, this is the gospel that goes forth. Not half the gospel, half the gospel is not the gospel, it's a different gospel. It's a rule. How about I just want to give up? No, that's breaking a rule. I don't want to. <laughs> How about I just be quiet, I just be quiet. You're breaking a rule. He says, listen, you want the prize, just like in sports, you don't want the flags going up. Right? So maybe what God really meant, let's reinvent. Let's reimagine the gospel as the new age Christianity writers are writing. You know what? As soon as they say that, flag, penalty, flag. You're going to lose. And not only are you going to lose, but the people who are listening to you are going to lose. Because it's not the gospel. And if it's not the gospel, you can't be saved. If it's not the gospel, you definitely can't uh, be blessed for sure. Amen? Amen. 2 Timothy 9, 24, 27 through 27. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Christians, come on. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but ours is a forever crown. A forever crown. You're looking to that prize, and and by your faithfulness, you are determining now how you are going to serve there in eternity. Will it be worth amending the gospel for your own personal comfort and convenience when there's loss of reward, loss of status, loss of responsibility? It will happen there because a penalty flag flew when you broke the rules. You want to win that prize? Don't break the rules. Play according to the rules. It's not that hard. We've got a whole book of them. 66 chapters right there. (laughs) Rules in the best sense of that word. And then finally, I like this one the best because hardworking farmers is really a good description of the entire Christian life and everybody can relate to it. It's not glamorous uh, like the first two. And just about a lot of hard work like the Christian life is. It can be tedious and boring and take great patience and, ex- and unexciting. Um, you know, the best farmer in the nation is not a celebrity, right? Because we're not wowed by the illustration of farming, but it best describes us. Listen to what one writer said. This is the life for an ordinary Christian, the life of a farmer, A lot of work, and sometimes not a lot to show for it, for a good long while. Everything is underground and invisible, and like the farmer, when there are signs of life, everything moves so slowly. Plant life just wants to take its time, and it requires a lot of care and attention. There's digging and sweating and removing rocks and roots and pests and weeds and planting and cultivating, watering, fertilizing, pruning, day in and day out, many concerns. Like our Christian lives, every day, reading a little bit of the Bible, praying each day, working out our salvation, growing in character, slugging it out in our private lives, battling our personal besetting sins, dealing 
working hard at our marriages and our families, shining our light in the workplace, one customer at a time, one day at a time, one conversation at a time, one Bible verse at a time, one church service at a time. And then, like the hardworking farmer, our hard work pays off and the fruit appears at the end. Of all that labor, there's the reward. And guess who gets first dibs? The farmer. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, when you work hard and you endure in the face of Christian suffering, it is a personal investment in your own life, your own peace of mind, your own uh, spiritual prosperity, as it were. It pays off. And you're the first one. A lot of other people are being blessed, but not before you. Suffer and endure as a good Christian and as a diligent worker because you're the first to benefit. That's very nice. And so what I like about verse 7, he says, uh, think this all over. Reflect on what I'm saying. Listen, mull it over in your heart. Take these three ideas and ask yourself, hey, Lord, in your prayer time, while you're driving, uh, while you're working, how am I like a good soldier? Am I like a star athlete, a diligent laborer? And he says, the Lord will give you insight. Mull it around. Chew on these things. Do you do that or do you just zip through the word in the morning? Done. Never enters your mind again. He's saying, oh, the insights available to you by the Lord Timothy. If you take these things with you, after you close the scroll, think on them. When you've fallen asleep, think about this. And the Lord will start talking to you and applying it to your life. That's what he's saying. I love that. Now let's finish up here. Here's something that will help you suffer well for your faith. It will help you think with the single-mindedness of a soldier who wants to please his commanding officer. It will inspire you to think like an Olympic athlete who wants to win the gold medal. And it will motivate you to endure patiently like a hard-working laborer. And here it is. Remember Jesus Christ. I've got the scripture for you. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a common criminal. But God's word isn't chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Keep remembering Jesus raised from the dead. Now, the shout out there that he descends from David is really an emphasis on God's plan, his loving plan that was from the beginning to become one of us, to rescue us, to save the world. The incarnation, God, God Almighty, stepping into a human body. That's pretty amazing. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord looked at the devil and said, you know what? Through this woman who you just spiritually killed, from a womb like hers will come 
your destroyer. He will crush your head. You will wound his heel. He's speaking really of himself. The Lord incarnating himself through the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, who would come 77 generations from Adam. Luke chapter 3. He descended 28 generations from King David. From King David, 28 names, blood-related to King David. Not one broken uh, father connection, biological connection, all the way through Mary, who was related by blood to King David, and so was Joseph. Technically, we didn't need that to happen, but God threw it in because he likes to do that. He can make them both biologically related to Mary. Why is he telling this? He's saying, that Savior who suffered and endured persecution and was victorious, he was a human being. He suffered as a human being. When his blood ran, it ran red because he was a human. It didn't run green because he was God. He's the God-man. He emptied himself. He suffered as a man. He was born of a woman. And he paid our, our penalty there. Hebrews chapter 2 says why he came. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. We owed a debt. What did we owe? The currency we owed in was a human heartbeat that needed to stop. That's what we owed, death. So since the currency of the debt was a human life, he too had to share in the flesh and blood so that he could make the proper payment for us as one of us, spotless, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who for all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Remember Jesus, Timothy, When you're suffering, remember that from before the foundation of the world, he came to destroy the very thing you may be afraid of. There is no more death. Death died a long time ago. Amen? Hebrews chapter 12. It's a good thing to think about Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on him. Think about him. The author, the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy, he was happy to do it because he knew the end result, but he hated the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He overcame. Consider him. Think about him. It's good for you to endure such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. One more. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. But if you suffer for doing good as a Christian, you endure it. This is commendable to God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He says, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, if they hate you, keep in mind that they hated me first. So he says, listen, if you think, Timothy, Timothea, 
Timothy, Timothy, calling all Timothys. <laughs> if you're having a hard time, think about Jesus as a man and what he did. Remember him. Think about him. And in that way, you'll follow in his footsteps. You'll be inspired to give back to him. Now, when I think that Jesus did all of that for me, you know, I feel a little bit of sense of obligation, a little bit of sense of loyalty to him. Timothy, listen, in your face of suffering, I want you to remember what Christ did for you in all of that suffering. And bleeding and agony. He did that so that you could live forever. The joy set before him. He hated the shame, but there was joy because he thought of you, Timothy. Now, doesn't that make the suffering and the intimidation and the pain and the sacrifice and any cost a lot easier to bear when you remember that? Remember what my Jesus did for me. Isn't that what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2? In light, in view of God's mercies, we ought to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. In other words, instead of schlepping in some sheep or goat or writing a check, he's saying, in view of what Jesus, who God, who Jesus is, God in a body, who came to look for us, called us out of darkness. His kindness leads us to repentance. He saves us. He fills us. Still we're prone to wander. And he sticks with us. In, in view of that kind of mercy, from that kind of person who did that kind of thing on the cross, we need to give everything to him. And instead of writing a check or bringing an offering, if you could, you bring to the priest, the priest would say, hey, where's your offering? And you'd say, right here. Right here. And lay your bad self down on the altar as his living sacrifice. Wow. That's what happens when you remember him. Because you just feel like, hey, you know, uh, I ought to return the favor. What did he withhold from you? (laughs) What did he hold back and say, you know, I love you a lot, but you're not getting this. I'm keeping this for me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Comfort, Timothy. Death died a long time ago. There's peace to die. There's courage to live. And the last thing, when we remember Jesus and this gospel, (laughs) look at this. Remember Jesus, raised from the dead. He died on the cross for the sins as a human being, as one of us. That's my gospel. That's my Jesus. Am I going to mess with the gospel when it involves the blood of the Son of God? Am I going to have the gall to say, let me tell you what Jesus really meant by hell? Oh, I don't. It's very sobering to remember Jesus in the gospel in light that he laid down his life as God and bled and died for the gospel, and then entrusted that to me. When I remember Jesus in that light, I lose heart thinking that I'm going to mess around with the word. That's why I like to stick to the text, tell you what it means, explain that, and leave it to the Holy Spirit to do the rest. Amen? Amen. All right.
Lastly, here, as we wrap up, there's a hymn now. Oh, by the way, he says, and by the way, uh, the reason I can endure, check that out, backslide, sorry. The reason I can endure, I endure everything, by the way, Timothy, for the sake of those who are getting saved. Elect means chosen. The ones who uh, are responding to him, who are chosen by the Lord. I, I, people are getting saved. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if my suffering means that one soul will escape the wrath of God, and live forever in his paradise, reigning and ruling for him because I suffered a little bit. He says, you know what? That's why, I'm, that's why I endure. You endure because people are depending on us. We have the answer. We have the key. We have the, the way out and the way in. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. But it's both. The way out and the way in. Amen. Okay, so then he says, listen, let's close. This is why you can endure, right? He says, we sing about it every Sunday. It's a hymn, and here it is. They used to sing this. It's a hymn. It's set off in the Greek, just like a hymn would be. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So, number one, we died with him. Notice the past tense of the verb to die. He's not saying, hey, if we die with him, Timothy, if you die in the future, he's saying, we already died. At baptism, we identified with the Lord's death. There is no Christian who's going to heaven who hasn't first, in a theological, very real sense, have died to their own old life. If we died with him, Romans chapter 6. Don't you realize, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, when you stood in the baptismal tank, you told the whole world, my life is over, I died. My hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, my sinning, my doing whatever I want when I want to do it. I died, gone. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, sorry, I'm doing two things at once. He says, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Same idea here. Oh, well, that was fast. (laughs) Backslide. Don't backslide, anybody. Oh my gosh, Pastor Ross told us to backslide. <laughs> Jesus, were, uh, we were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Here's the line. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. He's not, he's not saying since you're going to be martyred, you're going to live forever. He's saying, because you went down in the baptism tank, you're going to live forever. They're together. 
You identified with Christ in some mystical, theological, spiritual way. You were with him on the cross, your old life, crucified, dead, and buried. And up came the new you. Behold, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's pretty hard to to intimidate an already dead person. (laughs) Go ahead and kill me. (laughs) I already died. I died June 3rd, 1979, in front of a bar where I gave my heart to the Lord. I died. That Ross is gone. And now to kill me now is just to send me into the presence of the Lord to receive reward. I'm not enticing anybody to do that. (laughs) All right, second line. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. 1 Corinthians 4. Here's what he's saying. For our light and momentary trouble, Timothy's are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So back to the hymn. They're singing, hey, it's not all about the suffering. It ends in this beautiful world where we reign and rule with him. And then number three, some really sobering words. If we disown him, he will disown us. Now, if that means that a born-again Christian has to hold on and then in a moment of fear and panic disowns him and that we will stand before the great white throne as a result and then he disowns us and we perish, then there are some very big problems because it cannot mean that. Peter denied Christ. Peter was not disowned. He was restored. It's the same exact word in the Greek. I did my homework. Peter disowned him. He was not disowned. Peter was faithless. He had a period of denying, but he was not disowned. I like what one commentator said. Those who die in unbelief and, and sin are the ones who have truly denied or disowned Christ and by doing so have denied themselves the life he came to give them. When a believer abandons or denies the faith, is truly born again, there too awaits a denial of some kind from the Lord, but a denial of reward and not a denial of life. Or else, Peter and a whole bunch of people in this very room are in big trouble. Let me show you why it's impossible for a born-again Christian to disown him and hear those words. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone, big word, born of God, born again, overcomes the world. That's the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Not our actions, our faith. Everyone born again, overcomes the world. 
Nobody who's born again will ever hear him say, well, then I disown you. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Because this verse would not be true. Now, I could go on for days, and you know I can, right? (laughs) But I'm getting hungry. (laughs) But I'm getting hungry, too. And I ignored that amen over there. I turned the other cheek. Go ahead, turn the other Listen. Matthew 10. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father. This is a life characterized by unbelief, rejection of truth, and who disown him in unbelief and die that way. Now, moving on to the next line, which is a lot more encouraging. (laughs) If we are faithless, and that's what we do, he will remain faithful, for he cannot be anything else. He cannot disown himself. If anything is true of God, he must be consistent with his own character and nature. And what is that character? He said, anyone who is born of the Spirit will overcome the world. So when we are faithless, and Peter says, oh, I, I don't know the men. Yes, you do. You even talk like one of them. I swear to you, may God strike me dead if I even know who you're talking about. Cock a doodle doo. He remained faithful. Through repentance and tears and weeping, God restored him. And Peter thought, I've ruined my life. It'll never be the same. I'll never smile again. I'll never laugh again. The guys will never put their trust in me again. I've ruined everything. He'll never forgive me. That's when he needed me the most. I've failed him the worst. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He remains faithful. When we have our momentary lapses, and we do. For he cannot disown himself. It's a beautiful thought. It's very encouraging. That's how he is. That's just the way he is. He loves us. He doesn't give up on us even when we have our moments and give up on him. So this morning we're going to end by remembering Jesus through communion. Now, it's just amazing thing to me that we don't plan the services out to coincide with Communion Sunday. They just always happen because the Lord is really good at heavenly math and he's figured out how to line things up so that it works perfectly. So we're going to remember his death. And I want you to think of this. You don't invest in something you don't want, don't need, and don't like. (laughs) You don't give your most precious asset to obtain something that you're not really crazy about. If you give a great precious part of who you are 
that's quite valuable to you and you give it away to get something, that something must be as equal or more in value to you than that which you're giving away. That's how he feels about you. He created you. (laughs) And then he demonstrated this unfathomable gift of love. Part of the reason he says, could you think about it, is to remember how valuable you are to God. So valuable. He looked over everybody's soul and he just said, these are people I cannot imagine heaven without. And he elected you, he chose you, he made sure, and then he's going to make sure. He said that your souls are in the Father's hands. And the Father is greater than all. And then he says, the Father has given them to me. And it's my Father's will that I lose not one. Another one of those scriptures. That's you. So we remember him. And now as I remember all of that, I'm like, oh, this is it. You need to get the bread and the cup, hold it together, wait. We'll sing a song, we'll worship. We'll reflect. The Lord gives us inside us. We do that. And then I'll come back and we'll pray over each one and take them together. Uh, if you're new to our church, you're welcome to participate as long as you're a born-again Christian. Uh, I even say, hey, listen, some of you have come in and you're not born again yet, but you want to be. It's as easy as a, a simple prayer to the Lord. I give you my heart. I repent of my sins. I want to take communion. I want to be part of your plan. You do that before and you're welcome to partake of communion with us. It doesn't make any sense to do it if you're not already walking with the Lord. All right. So with that in mind, the brothers come forward and serve you and we'll worship the Lord. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.